Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. You don't remember the first few years of your life, right? Like, your memories start when you're, what, like three or four, five, maybe? How about this? By that time, like, before he could even be conscious for it, Cole Sprouse was on TV. Cole started working as a child, or like a kind of a baby actor. He was eight months old doing commercials. He and his brother, are Dylan, were these baby actors, again, in, in Grace Under Fire. He does Big Daddy, the movie with Adam Sandler, at seven. And then at the ripe old age of nine, uh, you would have seen him as Ben, Ross's son in Friends. He and his brother star in this big Disney show called The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, and that makes things even bigger. He's 13 there. He can retire by that point, right? Well, he actually kind of did. He went to try and find a normal life and go to university, comes back to star in Riverdale, and now is part of this really excellent new teen horror-ish movie called Lisa Frankenstein. He plays a Victorian-era man brought back to life in the modern day, becomes the love interest of the main character. He's kind of a zombie, and he can't talk. Cole Sprouse has been in the celebrity world for a long time, and I'm glad we had the chance to talk. Why he wanted to take on a role where he doesn't speak. What he learned from working with a mime to get ready for it. What he actually remembers from being this young child actor when he became aware of the concept of fame. He has 32 million Instagram followers right now, by the way. Why he retired. Why he came back. And why he finds the idea of getting death threats kind of normal. Lots in here. Here's my conversation with Cole Sprouse. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Tom. Appreciate it. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to have you. I want to read something. I, I was doing research for this, and um, your character doesn't have any lines in, in the film, or not very many. And mm-hmm. I read a quote from you that said, for me personally, I was excited to shut the hell up. <laughs> what, what excited you about actually having to do most of this without any lines? Um, I think, I, honestly, I, I, it was truly one of the things that excited me about doing the role. I think... I think when you're kind of forced to throw out a lot of the crutches that you lean on, um, you really get to see your strengths and weaknesses. And it also just excited me because I, it, it gave me, it gave me the opportunity to, to really lean into physical acting, uh, as a character building exercise, which I haven't really had the opportunity to do before. So, uh, yeah, it was fun. I got to work with a mime and I got to be quiet, which I think, uh, my family is super excited about. (laughs) They don't have to listen to my nasally voice for, you know, at least an hour and a half uh, at the premiere. So that's going to be great. When you say it was an opportunity to see your strengths and weaknesses, help me understand that better. It's like you get to, you get to be sort of a pure actor and see, okay, this is where I am as an actor right now. You know, I, I think it's a lifelong process of, of learning exactly how you as a professional approaches certain pieces of material and certain work. And uh, yeah, it was fun, but it was also challenging. I, I think when I signed on to the project at first, I thought it was going to be easier because I wouldn't have lines. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have to go home and memorize anything, but it proved to be quite the opposite. 
And uh, I'm just very thankful that Zelda and and uh, our editor defended the the performance. Zelda was very specific about keeping a lot of my character in wide shots so that we can actually get the physicality of the character and the movement of the character. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad the character ended up ironically living <laughs> on screen the way that uh, that he did. Do you like this uh, song? Do you like any other music? I have the cure. Ooh. Oh, no. It's not that kind of cure. It's like a, it's a band. They can't make you better. I mean, they can, but emotional. Okay. Uh, you worked with a mime? I did. I did. I worked with a mime. Um, Zelda and I were having a drink one night. I've known Zelda for a very long time. And she and I were having a drink one night and we said, you know, it would be funny. It'd be so much fun to like work with a mime for this. And then as we started talking about it, we went, no, actually, that's a great idea. I like to work with, you know, a professional um, before most of the films that I do. One, because it's a great excuse to get someone to front the bill for a new skill um, <laughs> that you can take home. Uh but also it's fun. And, you know, I think I, when people think miming, they think of the invisible box. Yeah. This or they one. think of, yeah, yeah they think of the, kind of thing, yeah. the pulling the invisible rope. Yeah. But our, uh, my teacher was a student of Marcel Marceau oh, and wow. he had a, he had a, uh, uh, a process called the attitudes, which I, which is what we focused on, which was, uh, trying to trying to discern a universal language for how we perceive emotions uh, physically, which I'll, I'll give you an example. Now, if you were if you were a statue of rage, as an example, uh, what form would you take? And we compared the forms that I would take for each individual emotion that we and there was you know tens and tens of emotions that we, that Marcel actually clarified and we would compare it to Marcel's. And it was, um, it was fascinating how close every single one, every, every single one that I did was, uh, just instinctually. And so we used that as a way of, uh, informing how to keep a character, um, visually emotional without any sort of written dialogue. It, it was a lot of fun. I mean, honestly, you kind of take what you feel like is useful and you leave the rest. Um, but it was also just more of a fun thing to learn. I never thought about that. You're right. When I think about miming, I see it as the invisible box or I see it mm -hmm. as, yeah, yeah. I see it as like uh, doing that thing where you're behind a couch and you start walking down the stairs and it looks like you're- Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're going downstairs. I never thought about that. There is a universality about how we ex express emotions. If I ran into someone from Romania or someone from Beijing, if I looked angry or I looked sad, it would look the same to them as I would, you know. Mm -hmm. in, 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 so mime in some ways is about learning that, the universality yeah. of the emotions that we express with one another. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think my, you know, my kind of superficial understanding of miming from the outset was, was broadened quite a bit after training with Lauren and, and I think, you know, how much of it was actually applicable to the movie. Um, of course there were bits and pieces and I, I brought a lot of that in, but it was nice to just stay on my toes and, and work with someone and kind of get into the headspace. And, 
And then the rest of it was kind of up to the other departments to defend that those kind of choices. Um, and I think Zelda and I had had such a great communication ahead of time that I knew she was going to. Um, all the pieces kind of fit. The film directed, as you mentioned, by Zelda, Zelda Williams, the great voice actor and director, also happens to be the, the daughter of, of uh, the late Robin Williams. Tell me a little bit about working with her on this. You guys have known each other for a while? Yeah, we have. We have. Um, we've been friends far longer than we've been, you know, working together. I mean, man, probably second season of Riverdale, we started talking about doing something together. So almost five, six years ago, we started, we, we talked about doing something together and, and we had little projects that kind of, you know, reached a certain point and then fell apart. And I found out she was, uh, she was signed on to, to Lisa Frankenstein and I read the script and I ate it up. And I mean, it, it honestly seemed like a no brainer. It was everything that Zelda and I had always wanted to make together all the quirk and, and kitschiness of, of the movies that Zelda and I love. Yeah. It just kind of all fell into place. And, and I think the ultimate goal, you know, between an actor and a director is to have a, a free flowing kind of communication. Uh, that's like two buddies talking to each other. And we already had that. So I felt very defended. Um, I, I was incredibly confident that that she would be able to do everything that she put her mind to do. Um, and when she stepped on stage, I had not worked with her previously, but when she stepped on stage, it was very clear to me, very clear to me that she uh, helmed the ship like someone who had been doing it for 100 years. The um, you mentioned there, like you know, Zelda and I had a very similar taste in films, and this script for Lisa Frankenstein felt like something we'd we'd watch. Um, what what kind of stuff did you gravitate to as a kid? I mean, the first films I ever watched were kaiju movies. Um, I was a big Godzilla kid. I mean, I I was truly fanatical about Godzilla. I still am fanatical about Godzilla. Um, so it started with the monster films, but uh, you know, John Carpenter's the thing. Is still one of my favorites of all time. I, I, I you know, I, I would move on to Lord of the Rings, but all of all of the films that I took to the most that would become my comfort movies, that would become you know my most watched films, they all revolved around practical effects, like real practical effects. And um, this film seemed like an opportunity. And when Zelda confirmed it to me, to have me sit in a makeup chair and actually get into the practical effects that I had always been fascinated with, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was in the chair for about five to seven hours in the beginning with an hour and a half of takedown, but Ooh. it felt like no time to me. I, I I love that stuff. I've geeked on that stuff forever. And it felt a little bit like high-fiving my kid's self. <laughs> I think uh, I've always wanted to do that, and I think he would have always wanted me to do that. So, yeah, it was a no-brainer. How do you keep – how do you pass the five hours? I remember Jim Carrey um, – told me a story one time about that he had to hire, I think it was like someone from the Navy SEALs, like torture department to teach it. when he was getting ready for the Grinch because he was in the chair for like 10 or 12 hours. How do you pass that time of five hours t- sitting in a makeup chair and someone putting goop on you? You know, I, uh, my my makeup artists were awesome. We would chat. We would chat movies, video games, anime, whatever it was, and we would do that for about two hours. Maybe I'd listen to music for an hour. But no, I, I'd, I'd say the only thing that that probably I would have liked the assistance of like a Navy SEAL on was when you get the silicone cast for whatever prosthetics are being built by the studio in question. Uh, they truly entomb you 
in a silicone block Ugh. for like 45 minutes to an hour and you only have a nostril to breathe it's complete sensory deprivation um and that was that was intimidating i i i, I practice meditation and you know i pulled out you know not as often as i should but i definitely pulled out some of that and sat there talking myself off the ledge when i was uh, when i was entombed in the silicone what are your earliest memories of of working uh, I have some really, I have some really in like like very spare few memories from um, a show sitcom. My brother and I played one character on called Grace Under Fire, or maybe we were two characters. I forget. Um, we must have been maybe just a year old for that. I don't remember much of the diaper commercial stuff. Um, and then, really, you know, when my consciousness kicked in was uh, was Big Daddy. Um, that was my first time in New York. Um, and it was a huge production. It was massive. I was six years old. Uh, some of my first memories were, you know, Adam Sandler and filming in those first days. And, you know, that, that was really when I, I realized, oh, like this is a job that's pretty unique. And I was throwing sticks at rollerbladers in Central Park, and it was just fun. It was, it was fun for a kid to do. You know, it was things that I would have loved to do or had an excuse to do as a kid. Hey, how you doing there, boy? You sleepwalking? Huh? Why don't you go back sleepy? Sleepy. Keep napping. What's this? Kangaroo All right, great. That's terrific. And we're going to watch this after the game, okay? But after my nap, I always watch the kangaroo it's overtime right now, and there's a penalty shot about to take place. This happens like once every ten years. Kangaroo shark! Kangaroo shark! Kangaroo shark! Kangaroo shark! Right! God, you were normal yesterday. But uh, yeah, most of my first memories are uh, are on a stage or on a set. When, when do you start to have the realization around fame? Like, when do you start to have the realization of the concept, mm. the concept of fame? Like, because if, if it starts happening to you when most people are just trying to figure out like motor skills, when when do you when do you figure out that that, that, <laughs> that even exists? Um, I after the success of Big Daddy, people started calling my brother and I Julian on the street, which is that was when it sort of kicked in. But you know, back. Back pre-social media, and this is, you know, this feels like, you know, a bigger conversation, but pre-social media, the job really was, you go to set, you say your lines, you do your job, you go home. And then uh, the occasional, the occasional red carpet or something is where that, that concept of fame or celebrity culture kind of crept in. But it was a much smaller part. It was, it was really minor at the time. You might get recognized in the street, blah, blah, blah. At least for me at the stage that I was at in my career, it felt very small. Now, you know, post social media, it does feel like what we, you know, what we talk about when we say celebrity culture is a much larger part of the work equation than it ever was pre social media. I mean, it, it really does seem like I would say 75% of your job now as an entertainer is some kind of celebrity adjacent conversation or or uh tour or whatever it is um yeah. and the job itself you know which takes however many months in comparison is uh is kind of a smaller part of the equation now
That's a really interesting perspective to have because it's not uncommon for me to talk to people on this show who are like famous in the 80s or, or 70s or 80s or 90s. And they'll say stuff to me like, oh, it was so different back then. Or like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like living. I'm not in Van Halen now. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm really glad yeah. that I'm not in Seinfeld. Uh, yeah, interesting. Seinfeld now. Uh, you're the first yeah. person I've met who's bridged both generations that came up, got famous young enough that he remembers mm. when it was like People Magazine was kind of the biggest it could possibly be. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. To it sort of, in many ways, not to editorialize here, but kind of take over your life. Yeah, no. Well, I, I think the most interesting thing, you know, when, when you think about a lot of those those older acts, you know, most of uh, your professional entertainment career, it involves years and years. I, I'm kind of a perfect example of this in terms of diaper commercials and direct-to-DVD back and blockbuster stuff. Like those, those were the years that we, you know, my brother and I both, cut our, our teeth. You know, got our ten thousand hours Malcolm Gladwell, you know, professionalism in. Um, but we were able to do it in a much more anonymous way. You know, the the anonymity of the sort of pre-camera phone digital age. Uh, allowed you to really cut your teeth and you know we have this sort of anecdotal way of talking about older entertainment acts like oh they they really had to perform like there was no digital manipulation and all this sort of stuff was like well yeah you actually didn't see any of that (laughs) you know the training wheel period um because most of that was anonymous um and now a lot of the acting that most actors my age and younger have to do when they're cutting their teeth is visible to a sort of global stage. And uh, that creates a really interesting dilemma when trying to build the illusion of a kind of perfect career or like a, like a perfect set of talents. Because I think people want to see, and, and maybe I'm wrong in this, but I do think people want to see the fully formed entity by the time they hit the project that they're supposed to hit on and the the training wheel period uh, to a lot of people is is maybe not as glamorous or glorious but acting like music like painting like photography like anything else is a trainable discipline that you can get better at over time that's so interesting so you I, I hear what you're saying there like you you know you, you get to do it in rel like well let's say relative anonymity because you're right you were on sure. friends which was the biggest show in the world but you were like half a kid so you know it doesn't really you know it doesn't really affect your day to day. And you're also like a, a baby and then you're doing like direct to DVD mm-hmm. releases. So when you guys, when you and your brother uh, Dylan get that um, sweet life of Zach and Cody show, what, what happens then when you start going, the, the training wheels come off, you're, you go from doing oh, parts yeah. in, in, in a show to being in a big flagship, like massive brandy Disney show. Oh dude, it was, it was the golden ticket. I was, I mean, it was undoubtedly the biggest shift in my professional life I, I at that point at that point my brother and i had done man 10 direct to dvd movies which were you know at the time easy money gigs no one saw them perfect yeah you know kind of mary Kate nashley direct to dvd route stuff yeah and uh so uh, by the time the sweet life hit dylan and i you know we, we already we had spent so much time on sets that we were kind of ready to go um and it was I think one of the first opportunities to show an audience that actually it was two people working the same part. And in, in this role, it was the twi- it was both of us side by side. Uh, so it was, um, I don't know, it was, a, it was a life-changing opportunity. Why are you rushing to biology? Afraid all the good frogs will be taken? 
But don't want to run into Agnes. We were buddied up on a field trip to the planetarium, and she wouldn't let go of my hand all day. I mean, you look at Saturn's rings once with a girl, and she thinks you're engaged. <laughs> why, oh, why was I cursed with these devastating good looks? Imagine how hard it is to be the handsome twin. I've had this conversation with siblings who start bands together, and then that band takes off. So with The Sweet Life of Zach and Cody, what goes, what happens when you guys go from being just siblings to being sort of business partners in this project together? You know, it's funny. I don't think my brother and I really knew too much different because we were, uh, we, we were always swapping parts. So like the, we were always team oriented towards the same end goal from even before Sweet Life. Like we were, um, like we knew that it was a double act. It was a two hander. And I think we always kind of knew that relationship. My brother and I actually, you know, it, we were we had a really easy time compartmentalizing work and play when we were kids. Like it it was not like the job was definitely the job and the private life was definitely the private life. And we'd go home and we play video games and it wasn't really no big deal. But it was nice to, you know, it was nice to learn a new routine. So, you know, uh, Zach and Cody, as an example, was was a time-tested old television routine called Odd Man, Straight Man. And you saw it, you know, I, 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 tons of sitcoms have used it. It's essentially the odd wild card delivers the joke and the sort of straight-laced guy sets it up. It's uh, Laurel and Hardy. Yeah. It's all of that. So we got to learn that new dynamic, which was a lot of fun. And it was it was live audience. The all the sitcoms were live audience at the time was, was very different from what I do now, but it was so energizing. Um and it was consistent. You know, TV's a very consistent job. Yeah. That's kind of the only consistency you get within acting. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the actor Cole Sprouse. Cole started as this child star, kind of baby star in shows like Grace Under Fire and Friends when he was just a little kid. He became a big Disney star in the show called The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, all this with his uh, twin brother Dylan. He goes on to star in the show Riverdale, and now he's part of this new teen horror movie, which is really excellent. It's called uh, Lisa Frankenstein. So Cole's 31 now. Most of his peers have probably been acting for, you got to think, like six, seven, eight years at this point. At this stage, Cole has essentially been acting for like 30 of the 31 years he's been alive. We talk a little bit about that and why getting death threats doesn't really phase him anymore. If you missed the first part of our conversation, you can find it on our podcast, Q with Tom Power. Here's the rest of my conversation with Cole Sprouse. I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say consistent job there because I feel like I've, I've done the show long enough that I've had the opportunity to talk to a, a couple of former child actors by now. I've talked to, mm-hmm. you know, Sarah Polly. I've talked to uh, Nicholas, mm-hmm. Nicholas Braun. You, mm-hmm. you guys, um, meaning you former child actors, seem to have the best idea of acting as work the, of, oh, yeah. of anyone I've met. Do you know what I mean? I actually, I, I agree with you. It's probably the major distinguishing factor just from the philosophical approach to work uh, between people that elect into acting at a later date and people that have done it since a very young age. It, it's the, it, it, to me, actually, you're touching upon the most noticeable distinction I can tell also between kids that start working when they're very, very young and kids that choose to work or adults that choose to work at a later age. 
you, you see it as a job. I'm going to clock in and go home. Um, not fully. We just, we understand that it is a pursuit of passion that is packaged inside of an industry. Right, 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 right. It's, it's, it's the marriage of, of art and commerce. Exactly right. And, and I think, you know, we're one of, we're also, we're one of the only industries that it sells, sells itself as incredibly royal like we we do <laughs> film and television sells itself as one of the most elite no, royal no. Uh, isn't it so shocking <laughs> so shocking and we're one of the only industries that actually gets to choose an image of itself and we've chosen like pure royalty it's absurd anyhow um and and so the division between art and commerce has uh has quite a wide public perception for film and television so it can be a bit jarring to hear someone talk about acting like it's a purely professional pursuit. Uh, but I, I do believe there is a gray area in between those two, the art and commerce of it all, like one for the money, two for the show kind of approach yeah. to the job that I, that I think is usually the most healthy approach. And most working actors I know are most people that have been around acting for 10, 20 plus years all have a very sensible um approach to the job as uh, some in-between of art and commerce because it can still be an incredibly passionate work environment that's incredibly inspiring um but it's still a job if if it is still your main career and your main profession uh you still need to look at it as a financial pursuit as well so that's the that's the production side of things that's like the creation side sure. of things that's you on, on the side of the camera i'm also interested sure. in talking about the like the perception and the uh, impact of, of the work. So um, for people who don't know, you, you leave the industry for a while. Um, um, you, you go to college. The goal was, and I, I love you said that, you, you, the goal was to kind of fade out, right? The goal was to kind of put it yeah. all away. Mm -hmm. And then you, you come back on the show Riverdale, which shot in, in Canada. You play Jughead. It's a really, it's a really, becomes a really big show. I spoke to one of your uh, co-stars not that long ago, uh, Vanessa Morgan. And, oh, yeah. And she told me, about receiving death threats because of oh, a yeah. plot line in the show where your character Jughead and and, and Tony kiss. So mm. do you ever get used to that? Like this in, this intense investment people have in these characters? Did you experience that, that kind of thing? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, but we also experience, you kind of experience that throughout your whole career. Um, it, would I call it normal? No, I, I probably would not call it normal, but you do become desensitized to it over time. I think it also depends on the, on the genre of the, the project that you're working on and the intended fan base. Uh, so certain projects have, have hit certain fan bases in very specific ways. And uh, I, I, to be honest, it's still kind of a mystery to me. I don't fully understand it. But I do think in some twisted way, it's coming from love and like protectiveness. It's I know that sounds absurd to suggest, but that that kind of level of whatever that is, is like a defense of characters that you feel so, so strongly about. I haven't fully dissected. Like, I, I really don't fully understand it, but uh, I will say, yeah, you know, we got used to it on Riverdale specifically. Um our fans were were really passionate about the show, um, and that leaked into the private lives of the actors who were playing the characters on the show. So, yeah, I mean, we we got 
strangely desensitized to it. Well, this is what serpents do for fun, huh? Street race rival gang. Just go ahead and say it, Betty. You said you weren't going to join them, Jack. And you said you love me. And then you dumped me via Archie. Which, by the way, way worse than via text. It won't make any sense. But everything around us was imploding, and I did it to protect you. Betty, you did the one thing that could actually hurt me. You're right, because I remember talking, and God love Vanessa Morgan, I remember talking to her about it, and she said, yeah, I think she just tossed it off. She was kind of like, yeah, I got death threats, you know, because of that. And I went, wait, 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 someone like, someone threatened to to kill you because of a fictional role. And she went like, oh, yeah, yeah. And I I have to admit, I walked away going like, why wasn't that a bigger deal? Um, Yeah. Because I think if you make it a bigger deal, it is one. I, 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 I don't know. I, that might even sound absurd too, but I, I like it actually is far more common. And I think it, it's a consequence of the way that we are allowed to discuss celebrity culture and allowed to discuss certain parts of entertainment that like you hear that sort of stuff and it's kind of just par for the course. And, it, you know, the media training, the media training that a lot of these studios now engage younger actors or newer actors in they actually do prep you for some of that um they prep you for like intense fandom well and and prep you for praise prep you for hate because i i think both of them can be you know uh, can be either incredibly validating or you know dangerous and i i think you know that's we were talking a little bit about the social media of it all um and i think that can also be you know social media has opened this this doorway to a very private um, private view of an actor's life or a celebrity's life. And, and it's allowed people to, to consider themselves incredibly close to that individual. You know, the media training that these studios do kind of prep you for that stuff. And, you know, the first one is always a little bit scary or, or you know, whatever it is, but it's always kind of existed in different ways, especially since I was young. It's always been around and you just kind of get used to it. And it sounds like an absurd thing to have to normalize, but you kind of just do. Yeah. You can, you can kind of, you can kind of normalize anything after you go through it. And everything, yeah, you know, truly and, through, and, and, through just desensitization. Yeah. Like I know, I know um, surgeons who, you know, people die on their tables and they become decent. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's, it's, yeah. it's yeah, exactly. Well, listen, I know, exactly. we're, we're almost out of time. I just want to bring it back to the film. So, um, sure. so for Lisa Frankenstein, I saw you post on Instagram about the film and you said, um, still surreal to have a movie on the big screen, even more surreal to see my rotting face on posters. And then you wrote <laughs> feeling, feeling very grateful. So after working mm-hmm. for like 30 years, um, and there, there would be an understanding, Cole, 30 years and 30 years of like, I, listen, we haven't talked about this, but like you are intensely followed on the media and you're one of those people that mm. if you like buy a, a breakfast sandwich, it'll be on Google Ma- Google's news for breakfast sandwiches. You, Hell yeah. You haven't, <laughs> congratulations. You haven't, but we can test that tomorrow. Um, yeah, you haven't um, found, you haven't become jaded with it, it sounds like. You, you still are able to hold gratitude for this. Where does that come from? Oh, well, I think it's a privilege still. I, I, I do. I mean, I, I think regardless of the way the job is perceived from the outside or the way that, you know, uh, a person in entertainment's life is perceived from the outside. I, I think to be able to make an expression of yourself and turn it into a job 
or it become a, a profession that 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 you pursue and you get to do and you get to do it with friends. In this case, Lisa Frankenstein was built with a bunch of friends who are crazy about silly kind of movies and monsters and practical effects. And you get to do it and you get to go, yeah, like I, I did that. That's an incredible privilege, man. Incredible. And for the, you know, the big screen part of it, it gets rarer and rarer every year to have films in actual theaters. Right. And this is going to be a wide scale theatrical release. That's an incredible privilege. That's what we grew up on. That's the, that's the stuff I used to love to do every Friday and go to the theaters and see these things in larger than life screens. And um, it feels real. It feels like that's what we set out to do. You know, like we hit the goal. Yeah. Um, it's always going to look a little different than it than it was when you imagined it going in. But that's 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 the thing that we all want to do. And um, it, I think it's important to hold gratitude. Sometimes, you know, I think all of us with whatever job we have, we can complain around the water cooler for a little bit, you know, like we all do that. Um, but I think it's important to kind of sit back and go, man, that was fun. That was a special experience. It was tough. It was difficult, but it's rewarding. It's very rewarding. Well, it like, it, it explains your love of practical effects. That's, that's just going through yeah. my head just then because yeah. you, you more than almost anyone I've, I've had on the show seems to understand both the realities of the practical and also the appreciation for the, for the magic behind this whole thing. Uh, Cole, yeah. Cole, lovely to meet you. Thanks for making the time, man. Oh, great questions. Thank you again for having me, man. This has been so nice. I'm not going to lie to you. I was kind of proud of myself for that practical effects thing at the end. I know, I know, the pride is a sin, but anyway. Cole Sprouse was my guest. His new film, Lisa Frankenstein, is in theaters February 9th. We'll be right back. Think of your favorite one hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now, what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm DeLon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Have you ever, I mean, this rarely happens, but have you ever loved a band and then the lead singer quits the band? I mean, every time that happens, the band breaks up, right? That's the end of the band. But I would argue that the band you're about to hear from from Canada have made the transition to new lead singer about as good as anyone can make it. They are the Juno-winning Canadian band, The Strumbellas. It came uh, as a bit of a shock to their fans when in 2022, they announced that their lead singer and songwriter Simon Ward will be stepping off stage to focus on his family and songwriting for the band. Uh, big, big shoes to fill. Again, lead singer, but also the, the main songwriter in the band. I was at the Winnipeg Folk Festival last year. I do that I do that festival every year. I don't know if you were there, but if you were, you would have seen the Strumbells get on stage. One of the first performances they did without Simon as their lead singer with this new guy, Jimmy Chauveau, as their lead singer. And it was 
spectacular. Like they really rose to the occasion. Um, like I said, Jimmy Chavo is their new lead singer. Simon is still behind the scenes working on songs. The result of which make up the Strombella's new album, Part Time Believer. That record's out tomorrow. I got to talk with Jimmy and with Dave Ritter from the band. I started by asking Jimmy where he was when he gets this call to audition for the Strombellas. I was going into Barber. Um, I was apprenticing at a, a shop called Sink or Swim in Brantford. And I was going in, and all of a sudden that morning, um, I got a follow from Strombellas on Instagram. And I was like, oh, yeah, cool, okay. And then I got a message, and it's, uh, hey, it's Dave. Um, was wondering if you're available for a chat. Um, like, let me know let me know when this reaches you kind of thing and when's good for you. I assumed it was just a co-write. So I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, like, I'll give you a shout after work. Um, let's get together. And uh, it was actually quite funny because I, I had my guitarist from my other band, Kadima, on the line, like on hold kind of thing, ready to chat to him, just to assuming that this was a co-write. And he's like, uh, maybe hang up on uh, your guitarist and uh, <laughs> give him a ring later kind of thing. This is this is something different. And um, it started the process and it was, yeah, it was the best. It was just like a fun, smooth, quite a long process, but a, a fun, smooth process of getting to know everybody. I mean, it, uh, uh, only to talk about this as much as you want, an interesting pitch come in as the lead singer of an already established band yeah. uh, whose lead singer will still be with the band, but just sort of behind the scenes. An interesting pitch for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably the best way that you could come in and take over a position of a lead singer, um, I feel, because it's it's kind of completely understandable in the way that Simon didn't want to tour anymore or, or go on the road and that sort of stuff, um, but still to be a part of the group was kind of a lovely, warm message of mental health over everything, yeah. if that makes sense. Because um, the road can be the best place in the world or the worst place in the world, mm-hmm. and I completely understand it. I have a cat that I leave at home, and it's it's a struggle for me to leave that cat <laughs> at home, so I could only imagine uh, these guys with their families and their kids and stuff like that yeah. having to leave those at home. Catch us out on tour uh, this <laughs> month. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, how did you know Jimmy was the right, was the right choice? We had a long list. And then we had a short list and then we had a few people come in actually and sing, which I can't even really imagine um, how weird that must have been for the um, handful of people we had come in. Um, we had some Zooms, uh, you know, sort of meeting, hey, uh, why don't you meet, come on Zoom and meet everybody? And, uh, you know, the cream rises to the top, just the, uh, his voice, his vibe, you know, all of his positivity and, uh, you know, he's just a great fit. Was it, was it a decision... Um... Was it a decision to keep going? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. I. It was like a series of small decisions, I think. Like, I think it was sort of, you know, a lot of us sort of looking in the room at each other, being like, all right, well, how are we feeling today? Well, maybe we'll get some names. Well, maybe we'll take some calls. You know, I don't, I don't know if there was ever like a master plan, but uh, it just, you know, slowly fell into place. But there was never a, hey, um, maybe we should stop doing this thing now that the lead singer has sort of stepped away. I mean, I think that was obviously like a very uncertain moment. So I think lots of things occurred to uh, everybody. I'm sure if you had asked me, you know, um, back then, how I felt on a Wednesday or a Friday, you know, it, it might have been different. So I think everything was on the table, but um, I personally fell in pretty quickly, I think, too. You know, let's try it. You know, yeah. let's like, let's uh, let's go down swinging if we're going to go down. And I should say Simon's still in, in quite involved. Uh, could you talk to me a little bit about his involvement with the band now? He's all over this record as a songwriter, and we're like super happy to have him. He, you know, I can... 
I feel like because I have a feel for it, I can kind of hear all of the little Simonisms in the songs. It's it's a it's a nice feeling. But yeah, we wrote uh, a good chunk of this record with him, and uh, you know, always great to see him. I'm still texting him like pictures of cool sneakers that I like. Okay, good, good. Nothing, nothing's changed that way. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jimmy, do you guys get on a phone call? Is that does that happen? Yeah, well, uh, we text every now and then, kind of yeah. thing. But when um, you joined on, was it like, hey man? Yeah, you know? yeah. It was uh, just he was he was super welcoming and super warming. I remember the first call. He um, he said something along the lines of. Uh, if they find a replacement for for me, it can't be anybody that's better looking than yeah. me. And they've they've failed that already. <laughs> and it was really sweet. And I'm like, I'm like, mate, you're very handsome. Stop it. <laughs> um, how do you? Uh, okay, well, talk to me a little bit about you know what, what do you do when you join this band? Do you do you? Because um, it's great. It feels like you've been there forever. Like seeing the show. Yeah, know? like it was honestly the biggest thing was first off just the meeting with them and making sure that like we got along and that we felt right together. Mm-hmm. I think that. It would be such a different process if I walked in and that first meeting, I was like, mm, these guys are kind of dicks. I'm not into this kind of thing. <laughs> I just, I, you could offer me all the money in the world and I'd still be like, mm, no, nah, I'm good. I'm going to just Shh. apprentice at my shop in Brentford. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so that, like, that was something that really kind of made me go, oh, I definitely want this. Like, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't, I don't believe that if you were offered all of the money in the world, <laughs> that you wouldn't be in a famous band with a bunch of mean people. I don't, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't know. I just like, I, the road is such a long, tough place that, like, to hang out with people that you're not fond of. Well, I guess at that point you could just get your own bus. All of the money, like, though. Yeah, I feel like I feel like I'm watching the band crumble right this now. Is, I feel like this yeah, is all exactly. this is all falling apart as we speak. <laughs> you know what I mean? I feel what like have I done? What, uh, I'm so sorry. Excited for the ratings, but sad that this is this is this is happening. Uh, Jimmy, talk to me a little bit about uh, working on this record. Oh, it's been so fun. Um, it's been a long time coming. We we started writing right off the bat, um, just to kind of get our feet wet, feel each other out, kind of learn from each other and grow from each other. Writing is such an intimate sort of process that like to jump straight in and just start doing that, it made... Well, you saw it at Winnipeg. It was one of the first shows that we played properly together still. It was like, I think within 10 gigs that we'd played. Mm -hmm. And it was, you could just see the chemistry there was like out and out just amazing. And I think a lot of that comes from being in a a room, just being vulnerable together, writing together, just kind of like learning each other and just like feeling each other out as we write kind of thing. That sounds really wrong. But um, it was one of those that just kind of, yeah, just going and just doing it every every day we we would have so many like big co-writes and we'd have like shifts of it and we'd have zoom calls and it was all these different processes and it was it was really fun to be super busy right off the bat and kind of just get cooking with it and then to have these tunes where we had we had so many tunes going into this thing and it was like each week it would be a different top 10 top 12 top 7 and like they'd all kind of maneuver their way up and um into the fold of like this should definitely be on the album and then that becomes song number 25 next week and it's it it was a fun process and it's like but it's nice now to finally be okay we can let these things out and start fresh well i feel bad for the folks with hair in brantford right now it doesn't look like you're ever going to go back ever go back to that uh what's the what's the song you brought in today Uh, it's called steal my soul tell me about it we wrote the song with brad from high valley and ben his producer and uh they were both in Nashville and we were like all squeezed into, we were renting this like terrible concrete wall, illegal studio. Um, I mean, not illegal, but um, uh, you know, that had no running water or anything that we'd been squeezed into for like the whole pandemic. And 
So we're the only uh, way to look out of this room is through the zoom screen. And we see like there in Ben's palatial converted barn in Nashville, <laughs> like the sun is shining through the wood beams. And we see these two like strong jawed. Like, strapping young men. Yeah. Um, you know, talking to us about their feelings and, you know, they're like beautiful guitars. Anyway, it was like we wanted to like uh, not just write with them, but like become them. Like sort of <laughs> freaky Friday. Yeah, that. Go, go yeah. through the screen. Um, and so I think about that every time I, uh, I hear this song, yeah. even though it's like, it's kind of, it's like a sad song. It's like a song about a, a lot of self-doubt mm -hmm. and about mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to keep believing in stuff, you know, even though um, it's difficult. But... Uh, the actual experience of writing it was like kind of sunny and, and, oh, and so funny. funny. Yeah. They definitely didn't want to trade places with us. It oh, was no. not mutual. <laughs> I don't even think I shouted that day. So like yeah. looking back at us, it would just shoveled across the screen and we're just like, huh? yeah. <laughs> they were thinking, you know, we're pretty good where we are. We're yeah. pretty good. We're pretty good where we are. Yeah. Well, uh, 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 Jimmy, lovely to have you. Uh, Dave, Thank would you mind you. introducing the song, telling us who you are and introducing the song? Sure. Hey, I'm Dave from the Strombellas and this is our new song, Steal My Soul. Sometimes it's all that I can do to get up out of bed Talking to the angels, fighting demons in my head, oh Oh Coffee and a cigarette and I don't even smoke Sometimes you gotta laugh when you're the butt of every joke Oh That is the world premiere of the Strombella song Steal My Soul from their brand new album Part-Time Believer, which is out tomorrow. Before that, my conversation with Jimmy Chauveau and Dave Ritter from the Strombellas. And that is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, after breaking in TV in a big way with a starring role on The Wire, British Columbia-born Pablo Schreiber has made a career of iconic roles. His latest is as Master Chief in the TV adaptation of the huge video game Halo. He drops by Q to discuss the role, dealing with the pressure, and showing up late to his first day on The Wire. If you want to get in touch with the show, q at cbc.ca is the best way to do that. Uh, otherwise, you can write me on Instagram. I'm at Tom Joe Power. The show is at CBCQ. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.